Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my content at legendaryupside.com. This episode of the podcast is going to be a narration of the Thanksgiving walkthrough. I've been doing free previews of the walkthrough narration on the regular podcast feed, but this episode is going to be the entire Thanksgiving article. That's why if you're listening to this on the premium podcast feed, you're getting the kind of standard podcast intro. Uh, The Thanksgiving walkthrough I've decided to make completely free. I'm making the narration freely available as well. The week 12 walkthrough will return to the traditional free preview structure. If you want to listen to the rest of the narration of the walkthrough and you're not a Legendary Upside subscriber, head over to Legendary Upside. You can sign up for 10 bucks a month or $99 for the year. Uh, but let's go ahead and get to the Thanksgiving walkthrough. The title of the post is Thanksgiving Walkthrough, C.D. Lamb, Centerpiece. Welcome to the Thanksgiving Walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this glorious Thanksgiving and Black Friday slate of football. In celebration of the holiday, I've decided to make this article completely free. Happy Thanksgiving. I'll publish the Week 12 walkthrough on Friday, a day later than usual, with the usual free preview slash paywall setup. All rankings and stats are updated through Week 11, except ESPN's open score and receiver ratings. As of publishing, these metrics hadn't been updated with Week 11 data. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastR, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. The first game is the Packers at Lions. This is at 12.30 p.m. on Thanksgiving. Packers implied team total, 20. Jordan Love is coming off one of his better games of the season. Against the Chargers, he delivered 9.5 expected points added with a 49% success rate. Love was also uncharacteristically accurate with a completion percentage 3.7% over expected. Then I have a chart here showing the EPA from week 11, as as well as the success rate uh, of all the quarterbacks in week 11. Jordan Love is in the part of the chart we want our quarterbacks to be in. He's in the top right quadrant near Lamar Jackson. Uh, A pretty strong game for Jordan Love last week. Love hit nine 15 plus yard passes last week, second to only CJ Stroud. At his best, Love can facilitate big plays. However, he's far less accurate than Stroud and most other quarterbacks. This leads to inconsistent play. Although Love has been decently efficient this year, ranking quarterback 13 in EPA per game, he struggled with accuracy and consistency, ranking quarterback 32 in completion percentage over expected and quarterback 24 in success rate. Then I have the same type of chart as the one above this EPA per game and success rate chart, but this is for the entire season instead of week 11, and Love is, is producing fairly efficiently, as I covered, but he's in the top left quadrant, so his success rate is below where we want to see. It's a similar success rate to Matthew Stafford, Sam Howell, Derek Carr, Josh Dobbs, uh, Justin Fields, so a bit of a boom-bust type of profile. Fortunately, Love gets a matchup against the Lions defense that is allowing explosive plays at a high rate. Even if Love botches a few long attempts, he'll get enough opportunities to make this matchup interesting. The next chart is the passing matchup chart. The Lions defense is pretty weak overall. They don't have a great pass rush. They're not very good in coverage. They do allow a lot of explosive plays. The Packers have a good offensive line, so Love should have time to throw here. Uh, they're not a great passing offense, but this does look like a pretty good matchup. 
Generally, the Packers aren't very aggressive. With a minus 1% pass rate over expected, they're a balanced team. They've had a similar pass run approach to the Jets and Panthers. Then I have the pass rate over expected chart for the season. Uh, the Packers are in kind of a jumbled mess of teams like the Jets, the Rams, uh, the 49ers, the Steelers, the Lions, the Panthers, uh, the Saints are kind of all in this mix. They're not a very conservative team. Like they're far more pass heavy than a team like the Browns or the Falcons, but they're definitely not an aggressive team. Against the Chargers, the Packers showed a bit more life, though. They posted a 2% pass rate over expected with a 5% PROE on 1st and 10. I'd begun viewing the Packers as a conservative team, but they showed last week that they're still willing to play aggressively in the right game environment. Then I have the Packers pass rate over expected by week. They did seem to be kind of moving in a conservative direction. They went super conservative against Denver with a minus 10% pass rate over expected overall and minus 24%. PROE um, on first and 10, and that was that was in week seven. Then they had two other run-heavy games, but last week they were tilted to the pass in an encouraging way. And this looks like a promising game environment for another pass-first game plan. The Lions have an ineffective pass rush and are susceptible to big plays. Like last week, Love should have time to throw. And if the Packers increase their passing volume here, they'll simply be following the established game plan against the Lions. Teams have averaged a 3% pass rate over expected against the Lions with a 3% shift to the pass. Then I've got the uh, pass rates for both teams here. The chart underlines that the Packers are a balanced team and the Lions look like a true pass funnel. Even with the potential for increased passing volume and strong quarterback play, Christian Watson will be tough to trust. The Packers have seven players with 100-plus routes run, and only A.J. Dillon at 0.84 has a lower yards per route run than Watson, who's at 1.21. Watson's inefficiency is striking, but I'm also being a bit unfair with this framing. Watson is playing a boom-bust role for an inaccurate and inconsistent quarterback. His yards per route run could be quite a bit higher. With a league average yards per target for his depth of target, Watson would have a much stronger 1.85 yards per route run. Only Romeo Dobbs, who's at 1.87, ranks higher for Green Bay. Still, Watson's inability to graduate from this specialized role is unnerving. At this point, it's hard to make a compelling case that he's the Packers' number one wide receiver. He trails Romeo Dobbs in target share, first read target rate, and yards per route run. Then I've got a comparison between Christian Watson, Romeo Dobbs, and Jaden Reed, highlighting that uh, in first read target rate, Romeo Dobbs is at 17%, Watson's at 15%, Jaden Reed is at 14%, so not far behind Watson there. In targets per outrun, Watson is actually last of the three at 17%, Dobbs is at 20%, Reed is at 19%. He's also the lowest of the three in yards per route run. Uh, Jaden Reed leads there 1.82, Romeo Dobbs 1.27, Watson 1.21. Uh, Watson does look pretty decent in open score. 74th percentile, Dobbs at 73rd percentile, Reed in the 40th percentile. And yet, Watson's skill set is a great fit for this matchup. With an absurd 17.2 ADOT, he's never going to be reliable week to week. But he's also consistently live for big plays. Watson's route participation has been lower than ideal, but that's been the case all season. Even with Dontavian Wicks starting to get more run, Watson's playing time has been consistent. With Wicks unlikely to play this week, Watson's routes are likely to increase, if anything. 
Regardless, he'll be out there running a lot of deep routes, and this is a good spot for Love to connect with him. Then I've got his game log, Christian Watson's game log, just showing that consistent uh, route participation over the weeks. Uh, he was only at 48% in week four, but since then, you know, he was coming back from that injury. Uh, since then, he's been between 79% and 85% route participation in every game. Jaden Reed's playing time has been far less consistent than Watson's. With the Packers implementing a pass-first game plan against the Chargers, Reed saw his playing time spike. After two weeks of sub-60% route participation, he spiked to 79%. Since week five, Reed has only hit 60% plus route participation twice, but hit marks of 88% and 79% in those two outings. Then I've got his game log showing his route participation. It's a kind of steady, right? It's always just kind of oh, 45%, 56%, 53%, but then it jumps twice into really strong territory. 88% route participation in week eight, 79% last week. Reed's inconsistent playing time is frustrating because unlike Watson and Dobbs, he's been able to convert theoretical yards into real-life, statistically recognized yards. His playing time uncertainty gives him a lower floor than he deserves, but this matchup sets him up for another solid mark in route participation. He's a viable flex. Luke Musgrave is dealing with an abdomen injury, making his status a bit uncertain, but he's a functional bet on increased pass volume. Then I have Musgrave's profile. Uh, nothing about his profile is particularly interesting, but nothing really jumps out as negative either. It's just kind of fine. Even if the Packers trail throughout this game, while primarily attacking the Lions' vulnerable pass defense, they're unlikely to get completely carried away with the passing game. Matt LaFleur has generally tried to manage Love, and he would likely prefer to keep that overarching approach in place against a middling Lions run defense. The next chart is the rushing matchup, which shows kind of a below-average Packers run game against a middling Lions run defense. Even if Aaron Jones' knee misses the game, the Packers' run game might not take a major hit. Unfortunately, Jones has not been a good rusher this year. The next chart is Aaron Jones' stats. He's been like quite bad as a rusher. Success rate of 33% is very bad, and there's no explosion to go along with the inconsistency. Uh, you know, I, I don't always hate a boom-bust rushing profile, but there's no boom here. He has been good as a receiver, uh, running back 5 in yards per route run at 1.65, running back 9 uh, in receiver rating. So that that is nice, and certainly the backfield overall would take a hit. But uh, the rushing component, he doesn't look to be adding a ton there. Jones remains an elite receiving weapon, but A.J. Dillon has been the better runner. That's a tough pill to swallow given how uninspiring Dillon has been, but that's where we're at. The next chart is Dillon's stats and... Normally, I would say that, you know, Dylan looks bad, but compared to Jones, he just kind of looks, uh, you know, somewhat bad. And Jones looks very bad as a rusher. Dylan isn't adding anything as a receiver, though. You'd certainly rather have Jones if you were the Packers. But uh, again, the running game specifically, Jones isn't adding much over Dylan. In fact, Dylan has been a little bit stronger. If Jones misses this game, we would normally expect Dylan to handle a big snap share, but he is dealing with a groin injury, putting his status in question. The Wednesday injury report will be crucial for both backs. Moving to the Lions, who have an implied team total of 27.5. Jared Goff tossed three interceptions against the Bears, which led to negative EPA per play for the second time this season. But unlike his meltdown against the Ravens, 
Goff was highly consistent against the Bears, turning in an elite 59th percentile success rate. Then I've got the Week 11 EPA chart. Goff was not efficient last week because of those interceptions, but his success rate was elite behind only Brock Purdy last week. Uh, So, you know, it kind of makes sense. Goff was able to bring them back and lead them to a win at the end of that game, overcoming those big mistakes. The numbers really back up that outside of the mistakes, he was pretty damn good last week. Goff has been highly consistent all season, ranking quarterback six in success rate. He's also been solidly efficient, ranking quarterback 11 in EPA per game. Then I have the season-long chart. Goff is right next to Lamar Jackson in EPA per game and success rate. He's having a very strong season. It's kind of looking like a better version of Trevor Lawrence in the success rate and EPA per game metrics. Goff faces a Packers defense that presents a somewhat difficult matchup. The Packers defend the middle of the field well, ranking 7th in splash zone coverage. Green Bay is similar to Baltimore in that sense. The Ravens rank 9th in splash zone coverage. And given Goff's meltdown against the Ravens, similar to Baltimore is not what we're looking for. But unlike the Ravens, the Packers aren't faring well against first read throws, and they are a much less formidable defense overall. Then I've got the passing matchup. The Packers are defending the middle of the field well. They're preventing explosive plays pretty well. But overall, this is not a great defense. Pretty weak pass rush. Kind of okay, not great in coverage. Goff is more fun when he can relentlessly attack the middle of the field. Goff's two highest marks in EPA per play have come against the Buccaneers in Week 6 and the Chargers in Week 10. Los Angeles and Tampa Bay rank 31st and 32nd in splash zone coverage. Then I've got Goff's percentiles by week. You can pretty clearly see the two spikes in efficiency here uh, against the Chargers and the Buccaneers, teams that are both quite poor at defending the deep middle of the field. Goff was serviceable against the Packers in week four, but they're built to at least partially limit his primary method of attack. Like Goff, Amon Ross St. Brown is most fun when the Lions can attack the deep middle of the field. He put up 67 yards after the catch against the Buccaneers and 70 against the Chargers, his two highest totals of the season. But even if not at peak efficiency, St. Brown should see plenty of targets against a defense that doesn't double-team at a high rate. In Green Bay, St. Brown was double-teamed on just 6% of his routes. He's averaging a 21% rate this season. And with an elite 31% target share and 28% targets per outrun, St. Brown's volume is secure. He's a clear wide receiver one. Then I have a comparison between Amon Ross St. Brown, Josh Reynolds, and Jameson Williams. Amon Ross St. Brown jumps off the page here uh, in kind of all the efficiency metrics compared to those two. Jameson Williams is seeing pretty impressive per route target volume, 1.97 expected yards per outrun. Uh, that's still below Amara St. Brown at 2.24, but that is good if he were to run more routes. Jamison Williams is a far more speculative play, but Williams' playing time against the Bears was highly encouraging. After setting a season-high 55% route participation against the Chargers, Williams made another leap forward, posting 66% route participation against Chicago. The next chart is Jamison Williams' game log, just highlighting that route participation increase. 66% is a pretty decent mark. We still would like to see that increase a bit, but it's no longer just kind of in the rotational zone. 
Dwayne McFarland sums up the situation succinctly. Then I've got a quote here from Dwayne McFarland's uh, utilization report preview. Quote, Williams registered a season-high 66% route participation and has a solid three-week trend, 34%, 55%, 66%. He came through with 12.4 fantasy points on two receptions for 44 yards and a score on three targets. Williams upgrades to wide receiver five territory and offers big play upside. Williams' 16.6 ADOT is extremely deep. The Packers have been decent at limiting big plays this season, but far from elite. By forcing Jared Goff to pivot from his usual over-the-middle throws, it's possible they open themselves up to additional deep shots. Williams is the live-a-little play of the week. Sam Laporta has been a bit quiet since his 8-reception, 55-receiving-yard, 1-touchdown spike against the Raiders, but he's seen 5 targets in each of the last 2 games and hasn't seen fewer than 4 targets in any game all season. Only Travis Kelsey, Trey McBride, and TJ Hawkinson have a higher targets per outrun among tight ends. Then I have Sam Laporta's profile. It's very strong profile for a tight end, really strong for a rookie tight end. The Lions passing game should be productive, but overall passing volume could be somewhat limited. Detroit just faced a Chicago defense that is strong against the run and weak against the pass, but the Lions still operated with a clear tilt to the run. Then I've got their expected pass rate by week. They had a minus 10% pass rate over expected last week against the Chicago team that you're kind of supposed to throw on. But uh, they, you know, obviously they had the golf interceptions, but this was a conservative game plan. And the Lions been pretty consistently conservative this season, um, except in a, a couple instances that, you know, are a bit kind of outliers, like when they didn't have their, their starting running backs or the when they've been way behind. But pretty clear identity here for the Lions. They are a run-heavy team. This week, Dan Campbell gets a run-funnel Packers defense. Then I've got the pass rate chart. You can see the Lions profiling here again as a run-heavy team and the Packers as a run-funnel. Dan Campbell isn't going to misdiagnose this matchup. The Packers are a run-funnel because they aren't very good against the run. The Lions should feel comfortable leaning into their primary mode of attack. Then I've got the rushing matchup. The Lions rushing offense is pretty good. The Packers run defense is not horrendous, but it's below average in all of the metrics that I typically reference. Last week demonstrated that a conservative Lions game plan is likely to go through David Montgomery. Against the Bears, Montgomery handled 57% of carries. Then I have his game log. He jumped from 39% of carries in week 10 to 57% in week 11. Montgomery has been a very impressive rusher this season. He ranks running back two in success rate and is combining that with elite burst. He profiles as a touchdown or bust running back two play, even with Jameer Gibbs heavily involved. Then I have David Montgomery's profile. When I say elite burst, I'm talking about running back six in rush yards over expected per game, running back three in breakaway yards. He's running back 10 in elusive rating. He's always been a tackle breaker, but I've sometimes used Montgomery as like an example of a guy who doesn't do anything after uh, breaking tackles sometimes is kind of underselling it. He's He's been kind of the archetype in my mind for that guy. He has been doing stuff after breaking tackles this year. He's he's had really impressive long runs. We should expect Gibbs to be heavily involved, though. He's handled 58% of snaps in each of the last two games with target shares of 16% and 19%. Then I have his game log just underlying his solid playing time with really strong receiving usage. 
Last week, Gibbs and Montgomery both saw 14 opportunities, but Gibbs' six targets resulted in a workload worth 17.4 expected points. Montgomery's two targets limited him to just 12.4 expected points. Gibbs' high-end receiving role makes him an RB1, even in a split backfield. Then I have Gibbs' profile. He's much more of a boom-bust rusher, only a 33% success rate, but he is providing burst, RB7 in breakaway yards per game, RB13 in rush yards over expected per game, but then 1.47 yards per outrun. That's pretty strong. That's running back 11, and he's RB6 with a 24% targets per route run. So the receiving role, really strong for Gibbs. The next game is the Commanders at Cowboys. This is at 4.30 on Thanksgiving. Commanders implied team total, 18.75. Sam Howell had a disappointing result against the Giants, taking four sacks and throwing three interceptions. But Howell's performance was also sneaky encouraging. With 35 yards and a touchdown, he had his most productive rushing performance of the year. Howell also posted a 66th percentile success rate, his second highest of the season. Then I have his percentiles by week. And although his EPA per play dipped below the 50th percentile last week, his success rate was actually pretty strong. So, you know, he was maybe playing a little bit better than it seemed with some of those big mistakes last week. Howell has his issues, but he's been solid overall, ranking quarterback 19 in EPA per game and quarterback 22 in success rate. His efficiency has been very similar to Matthew Stafford's, and like Stafford, he can make fun stuff happen in the right environment. Then I've got the EPA per game chart. Howell and Stafford are basically overlapping here. Stafford's been a bit more efficient, but a little bit more inconsistent. And Howell's it right in the middle of the chart, so he has not been bad this season, even though at times he has played bad, but at times he has played very well. But this is a brutal environment. Howell is staring down a Cowboys defense that ranks first in pass rush win rate and quick pressure rate. For a quarterback who struggles with holding the ball, this is not the matchup you want to see. Then I have the passing matchup. The Cowboys are a very, very strong defense. They're third in EPA allowed per dropback, third in dropback success rate. But the pass rush really stands out as their true, true strength. And that's obviously a concern for a guy like Howell, who holds the ball for a long time. As I've previously outlined, Howell tends to stick with the primary design of the play longer than other quarterbacks. This isn't necessarily bad. Howell is willing to hang in the pocket and hunt for big plays, but it could look pretty bad this week. The Cowboys have been highly effective at limiting first read efficiency and will be pressuring Howell quickly. The Cowboys aren't a perfect defense, but the Commanders don't look well suited to take advantage of their vulnerabilities. The Cowboys double team at the lowest rate in the league and are vulnerable over the middle of the field. They could be exposed by Tyreek Hill in week 16. But this week, the Cowboys get a commander's offense that doesn't have a clear number one option and isn't attacking the deep middle all that effectively. Sam Howell doesn't have a problem attacking the middle of the field. He leads the NFL with 124 middle of the field attempts. But 67% of those have traveled less than 10 air yards. The shallow middle of the field doesn't set up receivers for yak the way the splash zone does. Howell ranks just quarterback 20 in splash zone target rate. And the commander's target tree is so spread out that I think Eric Bieniemy might be doing a bit. After Curtis Samuel was ejected last week, Byron Pringle managed to tie Jahan Dotson with three receptions. But in fairness to Bieniemy, this is likely related to talent rather than scheme. 
the commander's wide receivers aren't getting open, and the Cowboys' lack of double coverage isn't likely to help much. No one is double covering them as it is. The next chart is a comparison of Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, and Curtis Samuel. You can see that Dotson actually leads the way with a 19% double coverage rate, but that's only in the 35th percentile for wide receivers. Terry McLaurin is at 18%, Curtis Samuel at 15%. They're not seeing a ton of extra attention here. They all have open scores in the 39th percentile or lower. So it's, it's not... Um, Actually, all that surprising that none of these guys is dominating targets when you consider that, that none of them is really playing all that well. All three wide receivers are viable short slate dart throws, but it's very difficult to predict who will emerge as part of what will likely be a struggling passing game. Logan Thomas is as good an option as any here. His 14% first read target rate is strong for a tight end, and he's being targeted shallowly, which should keep him involved if the commanders emphasize the quick passing game. Then I have Thomas's profile. Pretty solid. Um, targets per out run of 16% isn't all that great for a tight end, but the 14% first read target rate is in the 71st percentile. That's nice to see, especially with this matchup where we, you know, we might be wanting uh, to bet on how getting the ball out a little bit more quickly. So him going to his first read could be helpful. Uh, open score for Thomas in the 23rd percentile at tight end. So not like he's been all that great either. Passing efficiency is a risky bet, but passing volume is not. For the first time all season, Washington posted a negative pass rate over expected in Week 11, but the Commanders still posted a 68% pass rate, which is 5% above the league average. Even when the Commanders play conservatively, they pass at a top 5 rate. Then I've got their expected pass rate and pass rate by week, and they are just always... A, a very pass-heavy team, 61% pass rate is the lowest that they've had all season. They've been as high as 91% uh, recently against the Eagles in the rematch. They were at 80%. Two weeks ago against Seattle, they were at 78%. They are not shying away from passing the ball. But the Cowboys can be run on. Only the Panthers have a lower rushing success rate, and they rank 26th in run-stop win rate. Then I have the rushing matchup. Cowboys aren't horrible. Those are the two worst metrics. They're 13th in EPL out per rush, 13th in run grade. So they're more kind of like a below average run defense overall than a terrible one, but they can be run on. Typically, the issue with Brian Robinson is that he's game script dependent. But with Antonio Gibson out last week, Robinson dominated the backfield, posting a 78% snap share, 68% carry share, and 20% target share. Then I've got his game log really see last week jump out. He's typically been in that kind of like 56, 57% snap share range. His carry shares are usually high, but he has not had really high target shares. He only has two target shares of 10% or better all season. And those were in week 10 at 15% and week 11 at 20%. Robinson has impressed while picking up the receiving game slack. He ranks running back three in yards per route run and running back four in receiver rating. It's hard to have any confidence in Robinson's receiving game role if Gibson returns, but it's also hard to understand why Robinson doesn't have total control of this backfield either way. Then I've got Robinson's profile. He's been a good rusher this season, not amazing, but just solid across the board. And he's kind of popping as like an elite receiver, which is kind of wild, but let's go with it and see what happens, Washington. Come on. 
Moving to the Cowboys, who have an implied team total of 29.75. The Cowboys came out of their Week 7 bye with a new approach on offense, posting ultra-aggressive passing numbers in the three weeks that followed. But last week's matchup against the Panthers was a test of how serious Mike McCarthy really is about this pass-heavy identity. McCarthy eased up a bit, but still posted a 5% pass rate of expected against a run-funnel Panthers defense. The Cowboys look committed to the pass. Then I have their pass rate over expected by a week. Since the week seven bye, they have really, I mean, it's been wild how pass heavy they've been. Now, it fell off last week, but you would, I would not have been surprised at all to see them go run heavy against the Panthers. It would have made sense. They didn't. And Dallas now gets a Washington team that is as committed to the pass as any team in the league and is profiling as a pass funnel defense after the Giants successfully went ultra-pass heavy against them with Tommy DeVito under center. Then I have the Week 11 pass rate or expected chart, and you can see the Giants went super aggressive against the Commanders, which is like just so disrespectful <laughs> with Tommy DeVito under center. Uh, they had almost a 10% pass rate expected. They were over 20% PROE on 1st and 10. So they, they were really kind of making a statement that the way to beat the Commanders is you... You pass on the commanders, and it doesn't matter who's doing the passing. It's not hard to see why the Giants were aggressive. The commanders have been brutal against the pass, ranking 30th in EPL out per dropback and allowing explosive plays at the fourth highest rate. The commander's pass rush is also unintimidating. Then I have the passing matchup. And yeah, there's nothing really good you can say about the commanders. Their, their dropback success rate is pretty good. They're 10th they're there. They're defending the middle of the field fairly well. But the thing with the commanders is, is that, you know, they did trade away Montez Sweat and Chase Young. So it feels like the numbers may be honestly kind of overstating them. And they're 30th in EPL out per drop back. They're 24th in quick pressure rate. Best of all, the commanders are not taking away the opposition's first read. Dak Prescott and his weapons are doing something truly remarkable. Prescott leads the NFL with the first read target on 69% of his dropbacks but he also ranks quarterback three in avoiding negative plays while still on the primary read of the play. Then I have a chart here that shows how many sacks, interceptions, throwaways, and batted passes quarterbacks have had while still on the primary design of the play. So this is kind of like charting first read throws, but if the quarterback is still kind of on their first read or hasn't clearly moved to like a secondary option or tried to scramble, um, and took a sack or threw an interception, that would get charted as still being part of the primary design of the play. So at the top of the chart, Sam Howell's been the worst at this. Bryce Young, Daniel Jones, Desmond Ritter, Ryan Tannehill, Zach Wilson uh, are your bottom six. And then the top quarterback here is Kirk Cousins, then Patrick Mahomes, then Dak Prescott, Josh Allen, Tua Tagovailoa, and Justin Herbert uh, are, are the best six at this. Patrick Mahomes is also doing an excellent job of avoiding negative plays on his first read. He has the second fewest interceptions, sacks, throwaways, and bad passes in the NFL while still on the primary design of the play. But Mahomes also ranks just quarterback 39 in first read attempt rate. In other words, Mahomes is avoiding mistakes on his first read, but he's also having to move off the primary design of the play a lot. We don't need the numbers to tell us that Patrick Mahomes' wide receivers are letting him down. Our eyes have us covered there. But the numbers see it too. 
By contrast, Prescott is fully dialed in with his weapons. He's sticking with the primary design of the play at a very high rate and is being rewarded with high-end efficiency. The Cowboys are producing the fifth most efficiency on first reads, and Prescott ranks quarterback three in EPA per game. The next chart is the EPA per game for the season. Brock Purdy is kind of in his own tier here on this chart. Josh Allen is kind of in his own tier as well in the second tier. And then Prescott, Tua, uh, kind of lead a tier that also includes Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts, Kirk Cousins, C.J. Stroud, um, Jared Goff, and Lamar Jackson kind of in that, that big group as well. This goes hand-in-hand with C.D. Lamb's emergence as a truly elite fantasy wide receiver. Lamb has an elite 23% first read target rate. Only A.J. Brown, Tyreek Hill, Mike Evans, Cooper Cup, and Justin Jefferson rank higher. When the Cowboys are able to execute in the passing game, Lamb is the centerpiece. Then I've got a comparison of C.D. Lamb and Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks obviously had a big game a couple weeks ago, but his profile is nowhere near as strong as Lamb's. Brandon Cooks went nuts for a 9-reception, 179-yard, and 1-touchdown receiving line in Week 10, so he clearly has upside as part of the Cowboys' aggressive new style. At the same time, his profile is far less enticing than Lamb's. Week 10 was Cook's only game with a 20% plus target share. Lamb has hit that mark six times. And Lamb's 24% target share against the Panthers was his lowest since the Cowboys' Week 7 bye. Cook's is a solid ceiling flex play, but he's a far lower confidence piece than Lamb. If simply betting on targets... Jake Ferguson looks like just as strong of an option as Cooks. The tight end leads 15% to 14% in target share, 16% to 14% in first read target rate, and 18% to 15% in targets per route run. Luke Schoonmacher poached a touchdown last week, but ran just nine routes. Ferguson ran 35 routes, matching Brandon Cooks. Then I have Jake Ferguson's profile. He's been a strong target earner. He's been a strong route runner. Uh, he he looks like a pretty strong tight end overall, and then obviously attached to a very good passing offense. If looking to get a little off the board on the Thanksgiving slate, Jalen Tolbert needs to be on your radar. Since week seven, Michael Gallup has route participation marks of 51%, 49%, 50%, and 45%. His role appears directly impacted by Tolbert's increased involvement. Then I have Tolbert's game log. He's had route participation since week 8 of 44%, 43%, 63%, and 40%. Tolbert hasn't shown a ton this year. He has a very poor 0.85 yards per route run and isn't earning targets well with a 16% targets per route run. But it's hard to imagine he's running routes any worse than Gallup, who ranks 6th percentile in open score. Then I've got a comparison between Michael Gallup and Jalen Tolbert. Tolbert actually looks a little bit worse than Gallup but we don't know what the open score numbers are and it'd be hard for them to be worse. And so maybe, you know, logically, like the Cowboys are watching the tape, they, they see the route. So wouldn't surprise me if Tolbert's maybe getting open, running routes a little bit better than Gallup at this point, given that uh, Tolbert is starting to see more playing time. The Cowboys dialed back their passing game a bit last week, which made sense against a very poor Panthers run defense. If they were hoping to get Tony Pollard going in a good spot, the plan worked out well. Pollard posted a 67% success rate, the second highest of the week. He also posted 18 yards over expected, the fifth most of the week. Pollard now gets a more difficult commander's defense, on paper at least. The 
Commanders rank ninth in EPA allowed per rush, but in their last three games, since trading Montez Sweat and Chase Young, the Commanders rank 21st in EPA allowed per rush, and they just let up 48 rush yards over expected to Saquon Barkley. The next chart is the rushing matchup. The Commanders actually look pretty good against the run, but, you know, these are season-long metrics, and I think that probably overstates things at this point. Pollard's efficiency profile remains very weak, but he's a high-end RB2 as an 11-point home favorite against an exploitable run defense. Then I've got Pollard's efficiency profile, and it is still disappointing, uh, very disappointing in some of the metrics. 32% success rate is quite bad, but you know he's running back 18 in breakaway yards per game now. You start little tiny, little tiny signs of life here for Pollard. The next game is the 49ers at Seahawks. 49ers implied team total. 25. Last week's setup is a near-perfect matchup for the 49ers offense. The only missing ingredient was an opposing offense that could push them. In their 27-14 win, the 49ers operated with a characteristic tilt to the run. The next chart is the expected pass rate chart for week 11. This chart has four quadrants, and in the bottom left hand are teams that have a low expected pass rate, so they're generally playing a positive game script, uh, or were playing a positive game script, in week 11, but then they also did run a lot. So these are your classic dictating the run teams. The 49ers are usually in this part of the chart and they were last week. Uh, they are very much kind of establishing it. That is their identity. We've seen the 49ers post a pass rate above 55% just three times all season in their only three losses of the year. Then the next chart shows the expected pass rate and pass rate by week. And in their three losses, which were against the Browns, the Vikings, and the Bengals in weeks 6, 7, and 8, they still weren't that pass heavy. They had a 59% pass rate against the Browns, 63% against the Vikings, 68% against the Bengals. They actually had a minus 8% pass rate of expected against the Browns. So they were still really fighting that game script, trying to get the run game going. Um, and then against the Vikings, they had a 2% PROE against the Bengals, 3% PROE. So they leaned into those game scripts a little bit more. The point here uh, is that the 49ers are only really going to pass a lot if pushed, as I, as I stated earlier in the write-up. As last week showed, the 49ers are so gloriously efficient that they can turn in massive fantasy production even without a ton of volume. But volume is always something to keep in mind with San Francisco. The 49ers now face a Seahawks defense that ranks 23rd in defending the splash zone. You can attack Seattle over the middle of the field, much like Tampa Bay. However, unlike the Buccaneers, the Seahawks are effectively limiting first read production and have a dangerous pass rush. The next chart is the passing matchup. The Seahawks are pretty solid pass defense. They're not amazing, but you know they, they hold up fairly well in coverage. They're 10th in PFF's coverage grades. They're 9th in pass block win rate, pass rush win rate, excuse me, and 15th in quick pressure rate. Purdy doesn't melt under pressure. Teams are constantly blitzing him, and the 49ers are allowing quick pressure at the second highest rate. But the 49ers rank 6th in EPA per blitzed dropback, and fourth in EPA on dropbacks with quick pressure. Brock Purdy wouldn't be running away from the field in efficiency if he couldn't handle pressure. Then I've got the EPA per game chart, and Purdy really, truly is in his own tier right now. 
in success rate and EPA per game. Very impressive season. However, every quarterback is better from a clean pocket than one under pressure. Purdy has been remarkable at managing pressure, but the 49ers' pass protection issues are still a major problem. In the chart above, uh, I should note that uh, in, the, in the passing matchup chart, I did not note that it does really jump out that the 49ers are struggling to protect Purdy. They're 28th in PFF's pass block grades, 22nd in pass block win rate, and 31st in quick pressure rate. And this is a problem we can expect the Seahawks to capitalize on effectively to the point that we'll likely see more of a quick passing game this week. Yes, that's Debo Samuel's music. Brandon Ayuk leads the 49ers with a 25% targets per outrun. Samuel is at 21%, with George Kittle at 20%. But on dropbacks with quick pressure, Samuel's targets per route run jumps to 22%, with Ayuk falling to 19%, and Kittle to 16%. On throws of 2.0 seconds or less, we see an even more dramatic jump for Samuel. Samuel's target per route run spikes to 35%, with Ayuk at 24%, and Kittle at 19%. 29% of Purdy's attempts have come within two seconds. These are not uncommon throws. Most notably, Brock Purdy attempted a season-high 18 throws within two seconds against the blitz-happy Giants in Week 3. Samuel went 6 for 129 yards and one touchdown on 12 targets. Critically, Brandon Ayuk missed that game. But Samuel's shallow route tree and screen ability make him a natural fit for the quick passing game, which we should see more of here than in recent weeks. The next chart compares Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel. Ayuk's profile looks much stronger than Samuel's overall. Uh, he's been incredible in yards per route run. He's getting targeted more uh, deep downfield. That generally creates more upside. But Samuel's 7.3 ADOT here compared to Ayuk's 14.9 could actually be an advantage if Seattle's pass rush uh, is, a, is a big improvement on the pass rushes that the 49ers have played recently. Although this matchup should boost Samuel's involvement, Ayuk remains a great play. He's combining elite route running with elite target earning, and he is doing all of this downfield, which we love to see. George Kittle remains a strong play as well. He's also combining route running, target earning, and downfield ability. If the 49ers can protect Purdy sufficiently, both Ayuk and Kittle should be able to do damage against the Seahawks over the deep middle of the field. Then I've got Kittle's uh, profile here. You know, it's not as strong as Ayuk's by like at all. Like Ayuk's got um, like basically an entire yard per route run over Kittle, uh, who's only at two point only at two point three five yards per route run, which is elite. But by tight end standards, he's kind of doing something similar to what Ayuk is doing by wide receiver standards. But volume, pesky volume. As seven point favorites, the 49ers should be playing from ahead here. And although the Seahawks are a slight pass funnel, they're not the type of defense that will alter Kyle Shanahan's approach. The next chart is the passing rates and the Seahawks. They don't really jump out. I mean, they look like a slight pass funnel. It's actually the 49ers who jump out with a very, very low 54% pass rate. They are going to run the ball if they can. The Seahawks are solid against the run, but they'll still have their hands full trying to stop a high-end 49ers running game. Then I've got the rushing matchup. The 49ers are 8th in EPA per rush, they're 6th in rushing success rate, they're 3rd in run block grade, they're 16th in run block win rate. The Seahawks look fairly middling across the board. They're not a bad run defense, they're just going 
to have trouble stopping the 49ers. Christian McCaffrey is an elite play. That's true every week. But this matchup is better than most. The 49ers should play from ahead, but they'll also be contending with the solid Seahawks pass rush. That dynamic provides McCaffrey with multiple paths to an elite workload. And CMC is always a great bet for efficiency. Then I have McCaffrey's profile. Just a sea of green. There's there's literally nothing on this chart that isn't green. These are workload metrics. These are efficiency metrics. There's nothing bad here. He's only running back 14 in elusive rating. That's that's about as bad as it gets. Uh, RB2 and expected points per game at 20.4 expected points per game. He is delivering efficiently on top of that. He is currently delivering a legendary season with 24.6 PPR points per game. Moving to the Seahawks, who have an implied team total of 18. Geno Smith is dealing with an elbow injury, but he looks likely to play through it. As fans of football, we'd strongly prefer to see that. Smith hasn't been great this season, but he's far more consistent than Drew Locke. Then I've got the EPA uh, per game chart for the season. This is a slightly different version that includes um, uh, only a minimum of 10 plays, so I can get Locke on here. But he's got a success rate um, below 25%. Um, Smith is is just under 50%. So <laughs> it's like twice you're getting uh, successful EPA plays at almost half the rate when you move from Geno Smith to Drew Locke. The issue for Smith is that he's also facing a 49ers defense that has been very strong against the pass this season. They pressure the passer without blitzing and are very strong in coverage. Then I've got the passing matchup. The 49ers, uh, they're first in pass rush grade. They're seventh in pass uh, pass rush win rate. They're fourth in quick pressure rate. They are third in PFF's coverage grades. They're fifth in EP allowed per dropback. They are second in preventing explosive plays. They are fifth in splash zone coverage, eighth in dropback success rate. This is like top five, top ten numbers all over the place. Seahawks are a solid passing offense, but not amazing. The 49ers are all the more difficult because you can't afford to play conservatively against them. The offense puts up too many points. 49ers opponents are averaging a 71% pass rate this year. If we counted the 49ers combined opponents as a team, they would be tied with the Bengals for second in pass rate behind only the Commanders, who are at 74%. And I've got the pass rates. The Seahawks are a pass first team, but the 49ers really jump out here as a true pass funnel. And assuming Smith is up to it, we shouldn't expect Pete Carroll to shy away from this matchup. The Seahawks have a 2% pass rate of expected and a 6% PROE on first and 10. They are a pass first team. And Seattle has played in enough positive game script to justify a tilt to the run. Then I've got the expected pass rate chart. Uh, This is for the entire season and it's the same uh, chart that I was describing earlier with San Francisco dictating the run. The Seahawks are in the Chiefs portion of the chart, teams that are dictating the pass. Now, they're just barely in that part of the chart. They're kind of towing the line between teams that are dictating the pass or passing more because of the game script. But they are passing more than expected. And they are, you know, got a similar expected pass rate to the Browns, the Bears, the Lions, they're just playing things very differently. So they, they kind of have a different identity than those teams, but the game scripts that they've been in aren't really that different. Smith has largely been pretty good this season, 
but when he's not playing well, he sometimes plays very poorly. His efficiency cratered against both the Giants and Ravens. At less than full health, this is a dangerous matchup for him, because while I'm usually a fan of passing volume, a less than fully healthy quarterback being forced to throw against a strong pass defense doesn't seem ideal. Then I've got Geno Smith's percentiles by week. You can see the two games where he cratered. I mean, he really cratered. Fifth percentile EPA per play against the Giants and the Ravens. The Seahawks also appear unlikely to have Kenneth Walker, which will only increase their dependence on Smith to move the ball. Walker is dealing with an oblique strain and appears unlikely to play on Thursday night. That will likely leave Zach Charbonnet to carry the load. Charbonnet has been consolidating routes for weeks, which sets him up for an elite workload with Walker out. We saw that materialize last week, with Charbonnet handling 85% of snaps, 71% of carries, and 17% of targets. Then I've got his game log. He can Two things that are interesting here. Since week 8, he's had at least 53% route participation, but we also then can see the big workload last week when Walker got hurt during the game. Per PFF, Charbonnet's workload against the Rams was worth 17.8 PPR points, but he underperformed by 4.9 points. But Charbonnet could be more efficient this week against a middling 49ers run defense that has allowed some big plays. Then have the rushing matchup. 49ers are solid on the ground. Seahawks solid in, in the running game as well. But the 49ers are only 28th in EPA allowed per rush, so potential for some big plays here from Charbonnet. Crucially, given the context of this matchup, Charbonnet looks far less game script dependent than Walker. He's a lock to run 50% plus route participation and is a good bet for a double-digit target share. Charbonnet profiles as a high-end RB2, even with game script likely to go against Seattle. This could be a rough game for the Seahawks offense, but there's also potential for increased passing volume. And as long as Smith can be sufficiently efficient, that volume creates upside for his wide receivers. DK Metcalf has separated from the pack in terms of efficiency this year. He has an elite 2.11 yards per route run with Tyler Lockett at 1.67 and Jackson Smith and Jigba at 1.33. But Lockett and JSN are running cold on per-target efficiency. Metcalf is still seeing the most valuable target volume, but the gap, to Lockett in particular, is closer than his production suggests. Then I've got a comparison between Metcalf, Lockett, and JSN. Lockett and JSN aren't running super, super cold in yards per target, but they're both underperforming the target volume uh, that they're seeing per route. Lockett more so. Lockett, you would expect him to have a 1.99 yards per route run. He's only at 1.67. Metcalf's rated expectations, 2.13 expected yards per route run, and he's got a 2.11 yards per route run. So a little meat left on the bone here for Lockett in particular. Metcalf and Lockett remain the clear top options in the passing game, but this is an interesting setup for Smith and Jigba. With a 6.3 ADOT, JSN is the most dependent on passing volume, and for all its other issues, this matchup should produce dropbacks. This matchup should also force Smith to get the ball out quickly. He won't have a ton of time to pass against an elite 49ers pass rush. That suits JSN's typical route tree, but it also sets him up for screen usage. Smith and Jigba has seen 21% of his targets on screens this year. By comparison, Lockett is at just 6% and Metcalf is at 2%. Admittedly, even if this angle hits, we're probably talking about 1-2 additional targets. But Smith and Jigba is averaging 2.2 PPR points per screen, which is not nothing. 
The next game is the Dolphins at Jets. This is the strangest scheduling of an NFL game I can remember. It's at 3 p.m. Eastern on Friday. The Dolphins' applied team total is 25.5. Tua Tagovailoa has cooled off significantly since his hot start to the season, finishing 50th percentile or lower in EPA per play in five of his last seven games. Then I've got his percentiles by week. Definitely looking like a downward trend here. He was in the 100th percentile in week three in his efficiency, 93rd and 79th to start the season, then jumped to 100th percentile, then 30th, 31st, jumped back up to 88th, then 23rd, jumped back up to 68th, then 35th and 50th percentile over the last two weeks. But even with his efficiency dipping, Tua has managed three 300-plus yard passing days, including last week against the Raiders. The issue this week is that he gets a tough matchup, and the Dolphins don't really need to test the Jets through the air. After all, most teams don't. The next chart is the passing rates, and the Jets really, really jump out as a run funnel. They have a 58% pass rate against, which is very low, a minus 4 pass rate of expected against. Teams are shifting 5% to the run, which is quite a shift. So this is a serious run funnel. The Dolphins are a slightly pass-first team but not so committed to the pass that they would ignore this type of run funnel. The Jets' run defense is actually pretty solid, ranking top 10 in all the rushing metrics I typically reference. Then I've got the rushing matchup. Dolphins have a good running game, but the Jets are actually pretty good against the run. The Jets aren't bad on the ground, but their offense is grounded. The Jets have scored 13 or fewer points in 6 of 10 games this season. Since their week seven bye, the Jets are averaging 9.25 points per game. Two touchdowns will literally put this game out of reach. That allows for some pretty conservative play calling. If you don't want to pass against the Jets' elite pass defense, you don't have to. The next chart is the passing matchup. The Dolphins have an elite passing offense, but the Jets are very strong against the pass and they're strong overall. They're first in PFF's coverage grades. They are third in quick pressure rate. So they've got a great pass rush, and they've got a great secondary. But even though Tonga Bailoa has cooled off, his efficiency still looks impressive from a season-long perspective. Tua ranks quarterback 9 in EPA per game and quarterback 3 in success rate. And I've got the EPA per game chart here. Uh, Tua Tonga Bailoa kind of in Tier 3 here, along with Dak Prescott, Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, kind of all in this tier. Um, He has been definitely not as impressive as he was to start the season, but still overall pretty good. And we can be extremely confident that the passing game will flow through Tyreek Hill. Hill leads the NFL with a 4.06 yards per route run. That number is impossible to produce sustainably, but Hill is about as close as we ever see. His 35% targets per route run also leads the NFL. Then I've got a comparison of Hill and Waddle. Tyreek Hill's profile makes Waddle's very good profile look terrible. <laughs> he's just, he's 100th percentile in a ton of these metrics. Uh, Jalen Waddle is just merely elite in yards per hour in a 2.22 instead of off the charts at 4.06. I know Hill gets a tough matchup here, but the Jets could be in trouble if they are buying their own hype. As good as they are, they're not going to stop Hill in one-on-one coverage and the Jets rarely double-team wide receivers. This matchup isn't good 
For one thing, passing volume could be a major problem. But this is an intriguing setup for Hill against a defense that could be confident enough to do something no other defense would dare to, allow Hill to test them in single coverage. I'll note that in the chart above, Hill is in the 93rd percentile in double team rate, Waddle in the 98th percentile in the rate at which he's getting double teamed. Jalen Waddle's setup is worse all around, but Waddle also tends to deal with a ton of double coverage. If the Dolphins can withstand the Jets' impressive pass rush, Hill and Waddle should be capable of getting it done, even against this vaunted coverage unit. In the backfield, the Dolphins appear to have dodged a bullet, with Devon Achan day-to-day with a knee injury. It's possible we see him Friday. In the words of Mike McDaniel, I definitely would not rule him out, but would definitely not rule him in either. If Achan plays, he's likely to be limited. But if he looks on track for something close to his usual workload, it'll be hard not to bet on him as a running back too. Then I have Achan's profile, and the reason it's hard not to bet on him is that he's like running back one in every efficiency metric this season. Raheem Mostert will likely handle a slight majority of carries, regardless of Achan's status. Even after a quiet game against the Raiders, his efficiency remains impressive. He's a solid running back too. Then I've got Mostert's profile, He's running back three in elusive rating, running back five in breakaway yards per game, running back four in rush yards of expected per game. Uh, he has been very strong this year. Moving to the Jets, who have an implied team total of 15.5. Look, I've been pining for the day I could write about a Jets quarterback who is not Zach Wilson. But I have to be honest. I don't see Tim Boyle making things better. He certainly didn't last week. Then I've got the EPA per game chart from week 11. Tim Boyle had a success rate below 10%, which which is nuts. I mean, it's a super small sample, but it's still like, you know, Zach Wilson was awful as usual. He's always awful. He was awful, but Tim Boyle was, was even worse in success rate and still he was slightly less inefficient, but still very inefficient. Since entering the NFL, Tim Boyle ranks dead last in success rate at quarterback 91. Sure, he's been better in EPA per game than Zach Wilson, but who hasn't? Then I've got the EPA per game chart going back to 2019. Uh, The guys near Tim Boyle in the the far left of the chart here, the, the super inconsistent quarterbacks, are like Skylar Thompson, Josh Rosen, uh, Ryan Finley, P.J. Walker, uh, David Blau, Sam Ellinger, Zach Wilson. (laughs) I mean, these are the names uh, as as we kind of moved to more consistent quarterbacks, starting with Boyle, the least consistent of them. Um, Boyle has been better in EPA per game than Zach Wilson by a decent margin, but just the success rate is going to lead to some rough drives for, for the Jets. But honestly, I'm still letting myself hope. Having Zach Wilson at quarterback is like a Northeast February. It's not fun. But that's not really the problem. The problem is the ceaseless monotony of predictably gross outcomes. The numbers imply that Boyle's lows will be even lower. But maybe we'll see the sun poke through the clouds a couple of times too. Then again, this is a scary forecast. Then I've got the matchup, the passing matchup between the Jets and the Dolphins. The Dolphins uh, are pretty good defense. 
They're not an elite defense, but they're pretty good. But then the Jets' passing offense is just so, so bad overall. And they also don't protect well. I think on top of everything else, the fact that they are 28th in pass block win rate, 24th in quick pressure rate, like that's a major problem when you know you're also going to be getting bad quarterback play. Vic Fangio's defense is designed to limit big passing plays and has no issue double-teaming opposing wide receivers. This is a rough setup for Garrett Wilson, who, despite immense talent, profiles as a flex. Then I've got Garrett Wilson's profile, and, I mean, the dude is awesome, but, you know, he's only delivering a 1.68 yards per route run because uh, he can't get any per-target efficiency going because the quarterback play is horrible, uh, and, you know, this could actually be a fairly low-volume game environment if the Dolphins just kind of run it down their throats. Fortunately, the Dolphins are more vulnerable on the ground, ranking 27th in EPA allowed per rush, 24th in rushing success rate, and 22nd in run-stop win rate. Then I've got the rushing matchup. Dolphins, weirdly, are third in run grade, which, which jumps off the page here, but in all the other metrics, they're pretty poor. The Jets are not a great rushing offense. Again, the offensive line looks poor here, 24th in run block win rate, 23rd in run block grade, um, but you know, this doesn't look like an imposing matchup here uh, with the Dolphins' run defense. Brees Hall's acceleration is incredible, and it's showing up in all the big play efficiency metrics. Unfortunately, he remains extremely inconsistent, and that will likely continue this week. But this is a good setup for Hall in his usual pray-for-a-big-play RB1 role. Then I've got Brees Hall's profile. His success rate is 32%, that's running back 46, that's 8th percentile. That part of the profile is becoming a huge red flag. Again, it's hard to know how much of this is Hall and how much of this is just being on this horrendous offense where they can stack the box against him, but he is still delivering big plays, running back 2 in yards per route run at 1.74, running back 4 in breakaway yards per game, running back 8 in rush yards over expected per game. And he's still delivering two fantasy points over expected per game, which is RB9. So, you know, he's still he's still getting it done despite, uh, you know, being a part of this terrible Jets offense. But that'll do it for this Thanksgiving walkthrough. I hope you have an awesome Thanksgiving. Always a delightful holiday to get together with friends and family. And I uh, hope you have a great Thanksgiving slate of football. The Black Friday game will be will be interesting. Don't know why it's in the middle of the day. That seems like a weird move, but uh, you know, whatever. And uh, I'll have the Week 12 walkthrough out later this week as well. Getting that out on Friday. Planning to get that out. Hopefully, like in the afternoon or evening. But we'll see. Uh, you know, this kind of put me back about a day. So we'll see when I can get that out. But it will be out uh, for you well in advance of Sunday. And I will see you then. Safe travels. Have a great Thanksgiving.